Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shaw, and this week we are talking about salami. Yep, that's right, dried cured sausages. My friend Christian Spinillo and I will tell you everything you need to know about getting started making your own salami at home. We go over topics ranging from starter cultures to curing salt to why you should always measure your ingredients in grams to casings, to meat choice, to fat choice, curing chambers, you name it. If you've ever wanted to make your own dry cured sausages, this is the podcast to listen to. So here we go. So I wanted to talk about curing meats, and I figured you're a perfect person to talk to about curing meats because A, you do it a lot, and B, we share a lot of the same ideas about things. And it's uh, it's a topic that I have written about a bunch of times, but it's always it's one of those things that it's always like the two minute explanation, not thirty second explanation. And this is a good format to talk about the ins and outs of what you need to know if you want to cure meats at home. And I mean, this is I kind of want to talk more in the vein of if you've never done it or if you've only done it a couple of times, you know, we're, we're going to walk you through the process as opposed to really deep dive salami and cured meats 2.0 which we can do in another podcast right i think that maybe to start how long have you been curing meats how did you get into it and you know what's what do you specialize in uh so i got started when i was a kid actually my dad was uh off the boat from italy and uh, i can remember well as far back as i can remember every winter we have a party and start making different salumi and various ground and, and whole muscle products that we would cure in our uh, in our basement, uh, my grandmother's basement, or Nona's basement, if you will. And, you know, basically been doing that ever since and then kind of fell out of touch with it. And then I'd say about 10, 12 years ago, I started working on a farm and learning how to butcher a little bit more proficiently and picked it back up and been doing it pretty heavily ever since. What uh, what part of Italy is your family from? Campania. So the southern, oh, okay. southern area. That's kind of the, uh, the, the Achilles tendon of the boot, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> in more ways than one. <laughs> <laughs> it actually is also not uh, as widely known for salumi believe it or not i've been trying to find traditional products from that region and i haven't been able to find a whole lot beyond uh the standard preps that you've seen in other in other regions of italy sounds like you need to make a a a research trip i'm going for three weeks in april so that'll be that'll be fun that will be cool you'll have to give us a full report because uh, i'm i'm always fascinated by every time somebody goes over to Europe or to Asia or someplace for on a, on a cooking research trip, they always come back with something that it really floats their boat and that nobody's ever heard of out here. Yeah, I have one of those now, actually. Uh, there's a commercial maker, Cremonelli, Cristiano Cremonelli, and he, um, he made this salami one year called Musica. It's a liver-based salami from northern Italy, and it's only made in this one little area. And it's liver and clove, and there's a whole story behind the name of it. But I've been making that, and 
no one has any clue what it is. I haven't found any music, any uh, any writing on it, or or any documentation on it in any of the books or any of the websites. I haven't found anything, so it's actually kind of neat. I'm I'm already intrigued. Walk me through it. I mean, what is it? So it's liver and pork fat, and and, and a hog casing cured, or what? yeah. So it's hog casing. Um, I mean, you can do it in you know good mid mid size casing. So anything from like 32 millimeter up to um, 38 or or even a little bit larger if you'd like uh traditionally it's made with uh pork and pork fat but traditionally it's actually beef liver not pork liver that it's used with and the primary spice is actually a uh, clove so it's a pretty full-bodied salami if you don't like iron it's probably not going to be for you it's got that liver, <laughs> it's got that livery kind of taste to it but um it it's a really simple prep and it's chock full of fit, flavor and the texture is similar to any of the other salamis. It's dried to about, you know, 35% loss and you slice it just like you would any other salami. Crazy. I might have to try that because, you know, one thing I do and I have a hard time with just sort of sitting there and eating a piece of liver. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to like it more than I actually do, except, except for a really fatty bird liver. Those I can Those I like a lot. But I end up with obviously a couple of deer livers a year, you know, probably a pig's liver every year, and just you know, shit tons of duck livers. And the season ended recently, and so now we've got a whole bunch of duck livers in the freezer. And, and this might be a good preparation to do with all of them. Yeah, I mean, this would be a pretty killer hunter sausage style prep, like a little bit of an adaptation towards like the the smaller diameter quick dry type mm-hmm. stuff you know it's so full bodied you chuck a few of these in a bag in your jacket when you go hunting it'd be be pretty killer so what is it like uh one part liver one part meat one part fat you know it's i don't remember offhand i'd have to go look at the recipe i can follow up with that for for the podcast sure. notes but it's uh usually um about 20 percent fat to total you know, meat volume. So that would be, you know, whatever the total weight of your lean pork and, and liver is, and then 20% of that. And then the pork is generally, I think right around 20% of the lean weight. So it's not super heavy, but it's, it's in there, you know it. And then the clove is, you know, that's such a strong spice. I mean, I think it's (laughs) 0.02% of total weight. But still, you taste the clove. Oh yeah, yeah. It's if you if you screw up the clove percentage, it's pretty much ruined. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had a few of those, and that's the one thing we're going to talk about later: is spices and 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 dealing with the jazz of you know percentages and and consistency and and whatever. But yeah, doesn't it, it? Well, it sucks even worse with a with a salami because it's like, oh yeah, sweet, I'm down to thirty percent loss. I slice into it and it sucks. Yeah, and you, I try and prevent that a little bit by frying some up before I case it, so that I can test if it's gonna kill somebody. But uh, and then you know you can always add more lean in to to cut it, kind of adjust your mixture, but. Yeah, I mean, that's the worst part about curing meat. I mean, I have a, I just pulled down a prosciutto that was 28 months old, and Ooh. you know, you just you just kind of stare at it and go, well, I hope it doesn't taste like shit. But if it does, 
I guess it's just going to taste like shit. <laughs> and I'm going to be eating it. I'm going to be cutting up and eating it with a lot of beans. Yeah, exactly. Becomes ham hock. Right. <laughs> so, all right. I, let, what do you think? And I, I kind of want us both to go through this and like just bounce off each other. If we're <laughs> trying to explain to someone who's made a bunch of sausages before, so we got that part down. Yep. Um, but somebody who's maybe just made brats or Italian sausage or whatever, who wants to get into curing, if you had to think of, you know, anywhere from like one to three things that that are the most important things that people need to remember. What are your top three or so? You know, it doesn't have to be three. Oh boy, that's a that's a great uh, that's a great question. Uh, for me, it's it's. I mean, first and foremost, it's salt percentage. You know, everything else doesn't really matter until you until you have that. And on ground sausages, once you get into dried cure, you're going to typically use a little bit more salt, but for safety reasons, you know, you never want to go below 2% salt. Uh, anything lower than that, you're kind of, you're just asking for trouble. And that kind of, go ahead. And quite frankly, they don't taste right. Right. I mean, if you want to have a low fat or a low salt cured meat, then just go eat tofu. I mean, you don't even, you know, salt and, and cured meat go hand in hand. So you kind of have to like it and Obviously, it should be in balance, but it's always going to be at the forefront. I mean, it is cured with salt. It is the main ingredient next to the the protein. Exactly. Uh, Second, kind of building on that safety angle, and this is potentially the most contentious part of of salumi making for, for the modern folks, is use cure. There's no reason not to. Um, And, you know, if it makes you feel better to use celery juice powder i suppose go for it but you know use your nitrates and you know you're adding so little to the to the actual mix and the safety measure that it puts in place is just for the beginner is absolutely necessary and and also you know people forget that it's also a flavoring agent it's not Mm -hmm. solely uh you know, a bioprotectant, if you will, but it's, you know, it's going to add that flavor that people have come to expect from bacon or ham or just that, that cured meat. In this country, we use nitrates and part of the flavor that people come to expect comes from that cure. Yeah, we're going to get into that. I want to, because I think both of us can rant most heartily uh, on about the whole uncured fiasco which we'll get into but yes i agree with you definitely nitrates are are one of them yeah and we're talking about sodium nitrite or sodium nitrate depending on what you're doing right and in this case it's sodium nitrate we'll get into that yeah definitely and then i guess the last thing is just keep it simple you know you don't i I see a lot of people kind of chase down their childhood and look for these obscure preps that they may have had when they were a kid instead of just getting down the basics of salt black pepper proper fat ratio, proper mixing, get that down first and then start kind of spreading out to that, spreading out to those other preparations because with good pork, salt, black pepper and the right curing conditions, it's absolutely delicious. I mean, it's the essence of cured meats. And I I make that prep as many times as, as I need to to keep my, uh, <laughs> to keep my salami uh, drawer full, so to speak. 
that's a really good point though. I mean, it's it's one of those things that especially if you if you if you if you're a professional cook and you're listening to this, your inclination is likely to add and add and add and add and to say, "Oh, what what if we put a, this spice mixture in or what if we put x or y in?" And and honestly, of all the salamis that I've made over the last, I don't know, God, I, mean, I guess I've been doing this for 15 years or so, the best salamis, the one that are the most memorable are either the ones that you just described, you know, salt, pepper, garlic for me. Yep. Or or the fennel salamis. You know, the yeah. where it's basically salt, pepper and fennel. And so the, it was just really I think I think it was Mr. Mom years ago. It was a it was a uh, Michael Keaton movie. I'm always I'm always like the you know everyone has a celebrity doppelganger. For me it's it's Michael Keaton and I'd like to think it's Michael Keaton and Beetlejuice. Um <laughs> Yeah. Cuz that kind of fixed me, me pretty well. More of the Beetlejuice. And then like, yeah, yeah, totally. But anyway, I think in, in Mr. Mom, he's he's got like he's got to feed the kids. And he's like, what is the spice of the day? You know, and it's <laughs> like he just walks into the spice cabinet like, ah, it's going to be turmeric today. You know, yeah. But but I mean, if you think about that as a concept and you have, OK, I'm going to make a salami with and I want to taste the X. Don't make it X, Y, Z and then double A, double B, double C. I mean, because then you get everything muddled. Right. You know, you want – that's why fennel salami is so popular because it's – you you can kind of latch on to that beauty of the, of the meat itself with one other thing. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're a chef, you spend all that time chasing down good ingredients. And with cured meats, it, it concentrates everything that's great about the flavor. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm pretty fortunate to have – you know, my farm and, and whatnot. So we have, we have access to great pork, but the, the flavor is so intense. You kind of just want to get a baseline for that so that you understand how the spicing is going to change because more often than not, and, and I think it, it has more to do with this country than it does with anything else. You know, we're a country of excess and we tend to, to like to get hit over the head with, with flavor and, and seasonings and, Exhibit A, Guy Fieri. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't 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 start off with donkey sauce or whatever it's called <laughs> in the salami for a whole host of reasons. Um, the uh, but yeah, the the flavor of the pork is so important. I mean, you know, you know Scott Stegen mm-hmm. and 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 Jason, and you know we we've been talking a lot lately about how we just want to get back to just finding good pork and making different preps and different casing sizes and just going back to salt, pepper, and, and just keeping it simple and, and clean. I think, you know, that is, I mean, it's a, it's a point that we all talk about when we make salami. And it, I think it just, you cannot say it enough is that if you do this, the, you know, people are like, Oh yeah, I made this great salami with some Costco pork. I'm like, I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. I doubt it. I mean, your technique might be fine, but the, you know, it's like, why is that salami six shades lighter than the one that that Christian made? Like, right. Well, it's, you know, it's the water content is different. The the f- amount of flavor per square inch is different. I mean, it just it's almost a completely different animal. And there's so many good pork producers and there's, a, you know, more and more great pork producers that it's if you're going to spend the time. I mean, this is this is minimum of a six week deal. You know, and if not more, you know, depending on what you're doing, if you're going to spend that kind of time to create 
this product, go to the friggin' farmer's market and buy some farmer's market pork as opposed to going to Costco. I mean, it's it really – I don't think – we could spend an hour just repeating those sentences over and over again, and, and like and until everybody gets it, you're kind of at square one still. Yes, but I would challenge that just a little bit because okay. the last thing you want to do is – learn how to make salami on $11 a pound pork. So it oh, is a point. <laughs> so if you, yeah, if point. we're talking about beginners here and you're just trying to understand the, the basics of mixing and, and stuffing and drying and all, and you're trying to get your chamber dialed in, you know, that that's, that's the instance where, you know, a 99 cent per pound shoulder from Costco may, may be your friend point well taken actually you're right yep i i sit corrected <laughs> <laughs> i am right for the first time ever in our relationship no it, it happens it's, you know I've, I've got them written down in calendars yeah me too <laughs> i have them tattooed <laughs> i think the only thing that i would add to your top three would be starter culture yeah this one is i don't know why this is weirdly controversial with the charcuterie crowd but Oh, you use starter culture. It's like it's like talking to a pretty girl like, oh, you put on makeup. Like she's still pretty without it. But, you know, it's it, it you know, it's starter cultures are just insurance. You know, do you have to have them? I typically, I mean, especially if we're talking beginners. I always say absolutely you do. Yeah. But like your your grandma's basement, I guarantee you your grandma's basement was so loaded with good bacteria you didn't need starter cultures. Right. And I think that that's what people forget is the the 2,000-year history of the caves in which production of cured meats has occurred for the last 300 years in Italy. You know, it, we call that the, uh, the, the no-no method, you know, the like – no, no means, you know, grandfather in Italian. And it's always, well, you know, no, no did it this way. It's like, well, yeah, you know, my grandmother tasted for salt by eating raw pork. I'm not sure that I would recommend that for the beginner either, but people need to set themselves up for success and using all those things puts success at a much more attainable place for them as opposed to chasing down something that, that quite honestly they have no way of of even knowing if they have the right bacteria and yeah like like i've been doing salami in my little teeny kitchen for 11 years in the same kitchen i'm not even really that confident that i have the right bacteria where i'm in my ambient environment in the house so i still continue to use starter cultures yeah and th- the thing is is that there it's <laughs> this is a very topical conversation because we we had a whole long conversation yesterday about this actually me and my wife and the the boys previously mentioned and um you know a lactobacillus culture you know whatever strain of lactobacillus you're you're adding to your to your your mix whether it comes in a packet or it comes from the air it's still the same culture you know it it is what it is. There's no changing that. And people seem to think that, you know, culture X in the wild is different than culture X in a packet. Science says otherwise. <laughs> well, let's stop for a second. If you're beginning, you're wondering, what the hell are these guys talking about? Oh, boy. A starter, a starter culture is a freeze-dried bacterial starter 
that you add to your meat and fat mixture while you're going to, you know, right before you put it in casings. And what it does is, is if you put those casings in the right environment, i.e. typically at least room temperature and quite humid, and for American cultures, it's very hot and humid, then that particular freeze-dry bacteria wakes up and says, woohoo, and completely dominates the structure of your salami. And what it does is they basically outcompete listeria or any of the bad bacteria that could possibly be in your salami. And it, it's it basically the good bacteria win, and, and uh, the added benefit of it is, depending on the culture you get, you get a certain amount of tanginess in that meat and different cultures and different temperatures and different fermenting times will give you different results. And, you know, that's the other thing that not a lot of people necessarily really know is that you're not only are they salt preserved, they're fermented. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that a range of factors goes into the, the path of which fermentation <laughs> occurs. And it's that constant balance between, well, taking a step back, the way that the culture ferments is by feeding on on dextrose or some sort of a, a sugar and some people use table sugar but it right. takes a little bit longer for it to break down at that point because it's you know sometimes sucrose and then it has to be broken down but it'll still do it but those cultures feed on that that dextrose so you're constantly balancing the level of dextrose the temperature of fermentation the length of fermentation to get that proper flavor profile i mean most most folks here and you you correctly identified that there is an American culture and there are European cultures. And most folks here are and, used and Northern to, European versus Southern European. Right. And most folks here are used to the pepperoni slash tangy salami. And that tends to lend itself to, if you looked at recipes, it's going to have a higher level of dextrose. It's going to have a particular culture that has higher temperature uh, tolerance. And you're typically fermenting that much faster and, and, at a much higher temperature than you would. And hot, like weird, like 80, 90 degrees. Yeah. Like crazy, crazy hot. Yeah. Like tropical hot. Which gives me anxiety to just think about for my... No shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I'm going to like put heat lamps and a humidifier under a tarp in my living room and try to ferment this thing at 90 degrees for, you know, 48 hours. I'm like, holy crap. Right. You know, it's it's funny. I My funny story about the last batch of finocchiona I made... Um. It was beautiful, dude. I mean, it was a work of art, except I I didn't have the culture that I wanted. So I uh, I had the fast-acting, tangy culture, and I I still fermented it the same way. I fermented it for three days at room temperature instead of, you know, one day or two days at the high temperature that the culture style, uh, called for. I figured, ah, it'll be fine. And it was. It was good. But you'd eat it, and you'd be like, ah, too tangy. Yeah. And – because I mean, like those of us who are you know in what I affectionately call the meat mafia, you, you know you taste those little those little differences, and everyone loves the salami. I I even like it a lot, but it's it's not as good as the last batch I made, which had that much milder, just a barely barely discernible tang. Yeah, and you know the tang is is largely dictated by the amount of dextrose, and then there's there's obviously so. Wow, I'm kind of jumping all over the place here. But the the purpose of the culture, because I think that's an important piece to understand, is that it's beyond just flavor. But what the culture does is it drops the pH, and that's ultimately the safety step that all producers are, are trying to, to get to, is it needs to drop the pH below 
you know, 5'3", five, 5'2", five, so that it's in a safe range. That level of acidity protects the salami from being a, an inhabitable space, like you said, for, for bad bacteria. So what the dextrose does is it determines how far down into the acidic realm you're going to go, and then the temperature controls how fast it's going to get there. And the longer it takes to get there, the more flavor development you have. So that's kind of the, the balance that you're, you're jumping between with those two. The acidity is, is lactic acid, right? Yeah. yeah. I, didn't, I, 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 didn't, I wasn't sure if there was other sort of secondary or tertiary acids that, that hang out there, but it's mostly lactic acid. Yeah, you know, there, there probably is. Um, I don't have my, my meat science book in front of me, but I, yeah. I have them at home, <laughs> believe it or not. But uh, it's, it's like malic acid is a secondary acid in wine, where yeah. tartaric is the main one. Yeah, exactly. So let's go back. Okay, so now we've, we basically said, dude, you need to understand your salt. You need to understand that nitrates aren't the enemy and that a starter culture is a really good idea unless you're in your grandma's kitchen. Or, by the way, I've actually made salami with a bunch of uh, Genovese from the Central Valley of California here. And uh, they did it. They had it an actual, like a shed-ish. It was the old farmhouse, and it was the first floor of the farmhouse that they turned into a kind of a, it was half-sunk basement. So there was windows all around, but it was half-sunk in the ground. Right. And they had been making their Genovese salami that way, was still using saltpeter, and they've been doing it the same way for over 100 years. It was the coolest experience ever. Yeah, and salt saltpeter, for, for those listening, uh, saltpeter is essentially pure nitrate. So the, the cure one and cure two here are nitrates and nitrites mixed with salt, but saltpeter is, is effectively pure nitrate. It's also known as um, potassium nitrate. Um, right. And it's something that, uh, that actually a few of us have, have really started to play with because it does have an interesting reaction with a couple of different uh, cultures and, and additives that, that does enhance the flavor, but we're stepping outside of the basics and, and largely outside of even the, the, uh, the competent hobbyist and, and stepping really into 2.0. Yeah. Something like 4.0. <laughs> so. so all right so i've made i want to make a basic salt pepper garlic salami yep so first thing you know the way i would sell someone is like all right well you know how to make that italian sausage right right so with your salami because it's never cooked for me i have to pay more attention to the texture within the casing mm-hmm. so what i will always do is in rare circumstances, will I deviate from this, but mostly I will have part of that meat mixture ground coarse ish mm-hmm. part of it fine. The fat will, some of the fat will be ground with it. And then I will take the time to dice up very small, like a, the, it would be a French Brunois, which are really teeny dice, maybe a third to a quarter of the total fat that's going to go into the salami. Mm-hmm. And all of that variation creates it just it just makes it more interesting to eat, and it's hard to explain why, but it does. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, that's the that largely defines the regional differences of of salami. I mean, if you looked at the ingredients across Italy and France and Spain, most of them are exactly the same. But once you start looking at the methods and you start to see the size of the fat, is it hand cut? Is it ground? What the size of the grind is? That's where all your texture and mouthfeel all come from i mean like uh, uh northern stuff 
like if you talk about Metverst or some of the German dry cured products, which I've been getting into lately, those are almost all purely ground. Yep. There's not a lot of just chop stuff, and you know you get a lot of very uniform textures. With I, I have a recipe in the in the, the cookbook, the Buck Buck Moose that's coming out this fall, for Boren Metverst, uh, a Dutch dry cured sausage, and it's it's all a pretty even grind. Right. And it's 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 damn good, but. And that's another one with with a pretty distinct all spicy clovey kind of uh, flavor to it. But that one is I could do the same thing, and if I hand cut the the meat like I do with you know uh, southern Italian salami, it'll be different. Right. Yep. It'll it wouldn't even you wouldn't even recognize it. Fat content. I, I was interested to hear you say that you know that that liver one is twenty percent. I typically go. At least twenty five, if not thirty five, for my salami. But, but you know, twenty would be if you did a five pound batch, it would be four pounds of meat and one pound of pure fat. So, you have a little bit of leeway. I mean, I don't know what would you think is a happy medium. In what respect? You mean between twenty and thirty percent? You know, if you're if you're to tell someone, okay, if you're going to make a five pound batch of salami or a ten pound yep. batch, um, how much pure fat or you know or, or Super fatty product like a pork belly should you include? I mean, twenty twenty percent is your your baseline, and and you can go up from there. Um, I, me typically, I tend to do you know twenty five percent, but twenty to twenty five is a good safe place for people to be. Um, it prevents them from getting too fatty because one of the things that you know I've seen from a lot of beginners is they don't trim their lean as lean as they probably should, you know, when, when these, the pros do it or, or, you know, some of the more kind of, uh, the Craig deals of the world. Yeah. The Craig deals, you know, they're cutting up their hams and their shoulders and the lean is 100% lean. Whereas I think for the average home person, you know, they're not going to necessarily take that time to clean up the meat as much. So if you do 20 to 25, if there's leftover fat in, in the meat, or you didn't trim it as well, it'll keep you from going from 30, 35, all the way up to 40. Cause we see it's it, it weird. Yeah. And we've seen that a lot in, you know, sausage debauchery and people are saying, well, you know, how, how, how come my, my salami is so, so fatty. And we asked, or, or why didn't it bind? Right. Right. You know, and you, so let, let's stop ahead. for a second. Um, if you guys who out there who are interested in doing this, there are two Facebook groups. Um, there's probably more than that, but the, the, if you're just starting, I would say the salt cured pig would probably be your first spot. And then once you've made a few batches, move over to the sausage debauchery because the, the, the sausage debauchery group on Facebook tends to talk a little bit more uh, professional in 2.0, where the salt cured pig is a little bit more basic. Yeah, I would, I would definitely second that. I mean, we try and focus, you know, in the sausage debauchery and we try and help people understand why they're doing certain things. As opposed to just following a recipe, you know, why are cultures important? Why is the dextrose important? What is, you know, why proper mixing and binding is important? You know, uh, we want to make sure that people are making, you know, informed decisions for how they're producing their product, whatever that end goal may be. Uh, bind, you mentioned, this is a great place to put th- to talk about this. Now, the whole binding issue of any sausage, no matter if it's a fresh sausage or a cured one, especially if it's a cured one, is a, it's so vital, It's we need to spend some time on it. Yeah. And it's something that 
I actually struggled with for quite some time. You know, I would I would make a batch that would be perfect. I'd make another batch and it wasn't perfect. And then you know I got talking to Craig. Craig Craig Deal for if any, if anybody doesn't know, which probably most of you don't, he's a chef in Charleston, South Carolina, who's recognized as one of the he I I think he's arguably the greatest chef who's making salami out there. Now there's other people who make salami just who are not happen you know day to day chefs who make better maybe. But Craig is Craig knows what he's doing. Yes, and, and and I can speak to that firsthand, having eaten at his restaurant and also you know gone through his his meat room, if you will. Yeah, me too. Me, I, I did a, I did a book event for Duck Duck Goose at his restaurants, basically just so that I could eat his salami. <laughs> <There you laughs> that go. didn't sound right. No, <laughs> sure, I'm sure that's coming out in the edit. Ayo. Um, so anyway, so bind, but Craig told me, um, oh yeah, you know, what he does is again, like you just said, he separates the lean 100%. If you separate the lean and you add the salt to just the lean and mix it up, you don't even have to grind it. Although sometimes I'll do it a really super coarse grind with the salt and then let it sit in the fridge overnight. That one step goes a huge way toward developing a better bind in the end. Yeah, and I I do a similar thing. I don't leave the fat out. I I haven't found a reason why you you should, but th- I mean that's kind of the great thing about this hobby is you know there's nine ways to skin a cat, and then right it's part of it is just a trial and error. I mean you will screw up, so it's going to happen. But yeah, I mean essentially what you're trying to do with the bind is develop what's called myosin, and it's it's. Chem- Myosin is to meat what gluten is to bread. Yes, there's a great analogy for it. And when you're mixing, you want your mix cold, and Very cold. it's going to hurt your hands, but deal with it. And then as you're mixing it and you're kind of tossing the meat and getting it well incorporated, you'll start to see it kind of form a ball, and then you'll start to see a white film on the edge of whatever bowl you're mixing in. And that white film, that stickiness that you'll see on the bowl is the myosin development. And you want to basically take it right to that development of myosin, maybe mix another 30 seconds or so, and then you're done. Anything beyond that, you're going to start to get the mix too warm, or you're going to over mix and, and smear the fat and lose your definition. But that's kind of where where I tend to stay and the folks that have taught me tend to stay. Me too. Smear for uh, smear is a term that we use for if your fat in the meat mixture gets too warm, it uh, the fat can sort of quasi melt and smear over the meat, and it's it's the meat equivalent of shortbread cookies. And shortbread is called shortbread because the fat in the in the cookie mixture shortens the gluten strands, and fat will always shorten strands of either myosin or gluten, no matter what. So what you're eventually developing in this mixing process is a, a a webbing, a network of, in this case, myosin that completely coats the fat. And if the fat stays cold, it doesn't melt and break those bonds. Right. And do you, you still do it by hand? I still do too. Uh, well, for Christmas, I got a KitchenAid mixer and I used the paddle for the first time the last time. And I See, that's how I started and I stopped using it. Oh man, it's fantastic. But again, I know what it's supposed to look like, so I can look at the paddle and tell when it's at the right point and stop it. But 
that's a very easy set it and forget it step for for most people and i think the the hand step is a is a good one plus you need to toughen up if you're going to do this stuff that's a good point i mean basically the way i describe it is okay when you mix the final bind you should put on i don't know about inagata de vita but put on a fairly substantial song that you like and mix until the song is over or until you can't feel your hands, whichever comes first. Right. So it usually ends up almost um, – if your meat's cold, two and a half minutes or so by hand. Yeah, depending on your level of aggression. You're, you and I are from Jersey, so we may a little <laughs> bit faster. <laughs> we have, yeah, so it would be the difference between like you know mixing to Metallica versus mixing to Perry Como. Yeah, if, if anybody still listens to Perry Como. I don't think that's your audience, though. Everybody's like Googling who the fuck is Perry Gomo. Yeah. <laughs> Likely. So salts. Yeah. So we already said 2% is your minimum. And I don't necessarily like 2%. I, I, I like a solid 2.5% by, by weight. And what we mean by that is you need to weigh your meat and fat. Oh, this is another thing that we, this is important. Hey, everybody out there, if you want to make salami, buy a damn scale. Two scales. Two, two, you want you want one like eleven pound scale that you're gonna ah, pay, yeah exactly. pay your meat, and then you want a jeweler scale because when you're making things at such low quantities, the and you start factoring in spices and cure and culture, you're going to be at at fractions of of a gram, and you need that jeweler scale to get down to that level of precision. Otherwise, you're gonna um, you 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 could go from a a well tasting a good tasting salami to a very very sour salami with the it's really it really texture. is Chris is not bullshitting I mean we're not we're not lying about this stuff it, it you'll see if you ever see any of my recipes and I got shitloads of them on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook you know I put all my salami recipes up there or they're in the books you'll notice they are all in grams and I don't normally deal in grams and there's a reason for that and and it's exactly what Christian just said. Precision really matters. Yeah, and if you come across any recipes that have measurement by volume, I would work to convert them based on old recipes that you have uh, to, to levels that seem logical because you know a cup of salt is not a cup of salt is not a cup of salt. Right, but 51 grams is 51 grams. Exactly. And I, you know, I like a 2.5%. Uh, and by the way, it's two and a half percent total, including your your insecure number two. Correct. Well, for me, I do so insecure number two adds point two five percent salt to your overall mixture. So if you're so, for instance, if you put in two point five percent salt and then add in your cure, you're actually at two point seven five percent salt. Which is still pretty normal. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, most recipes call for 2.5% salt, but 2 is the, the safety zone. You want to be above 2. And if you really want to keep your salami until Armageddon, you can go to up – I think you can go up to like, what, 3.5 without without it getting really horrific? Oh, uh, it's pretty horrific. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, above above 3 on a ground salami is – I guess you'd have to like you have to shave it so you could read through it to eat it. Yeah, I'm dehydrated just thinking about it. <laughs> oh, I feel bloated. Yeah, right. 
Sorry to hear that. <laughs> how about <laughs> how about you know do you do you differentiate between salts? Do you just use you know Morton's or Diamond Crystal Kosher, or do you separate salts? Yeah, I mean, I, this is this is definitely a, a a continually debated topic of, of conversation. I mean, as crazy as the craziest I'll get would be like a trapani salt from from Italy from, from mm-hmm. Sicily, but I mean, I just try and use a salt that doesn't have any caking agent in it. Uh, the Morton's uh, kosher salt does have a caking agent in it. It's nothing to really worry about. It's my own anal attentiveness. But um, yeah, Morton's, David, Diamond, all those, they're all the same. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah, I mean, I think the if I were to tell a beginner what salt to use, I would say go to the Go to the, you know, if your supermarket has a Jewish section, go to that kosher section and buy the diamond crystal. Yeah. Because for whatever reason, diamond crystal is always in the kosher section and not in the regular salt section. Yeah, that's true. I have no idea. Because there is a kosher salt generally right. in the salt <laughs> section, just not And that, that would be one. Morton's. Right. It's, it seems to be some weird, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how to explain it. But diamond crystal is the kind of the universal salt, basic salt. Now, again, yeah, I mean, if I get a whole bunch of nice relatively fine-grained sea salt, I'll use that too. But this is why we do things by weight and not by... Oh, yeah, by the way, don't use table salt. Don't use, like, the little iodized table salt ever. Yeah, never. I I didn't even know that I needed to comment on that, but... No, we need... Yeah, no. Don't use the iodized table salt. Bad, 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 bad. Yeah, and don't use finishing salt. Um, and, oh, yeah, uh, big, big, crunchy, flaky salt. Well, it, it's not even that. Like, that, it'll dissolve eventually, but it's just a waste of money. Um, yeah. There's, it, I'm trying to do a, a test soon where I take a bunch of different finishing salts and dissolve them in distilled water and, and taste them to see if there's actually a taste difference or if it's simply just texture. But again, I mean, I. It's kind of both. Um, I've done a lot of this stuff, and we'll get on a tangent a little bit. But, yeah. but the, the the taste differences on salt are are a combination of impurities within that salt in and of itself, like the Hawaiian salts have clay in them, and the gray salt has you know clay in it uh, from France, and trace minerals and and um, uh, sodium chloride, yeah, yeah, sodium chloride, and potassium chloride, and these other chlorides. Uh, so there is a taste difference, but sodium chloride is sodium chloride is sodium chloride. Right. Now the only difference. So if you had the same sodium chloride from Utah in that giant salt mill underneath, you know, underneath the ground, ground to the same through the same machine as so, you know, trapani salt. There shouldn't be any difference except that maybe the trapani salt's got some sort of a impurity. Right. And that's that's sort of the 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 voodoo of of mythical salts. Most of it is texture. Yeah, and I mean, let me just kind of put a, a caution out there that we've kind of dove down the rabbit hole of minutia that most that in in the grand scheme of salami making will will prove no benefit. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, let's all right. Let's move on from salt. Just use just use a good kosher salt and two and a half percent more or less. So and you need sodium nitrate with an A. That's insecure number two or prog powder number two or whatever. It's you know it's usually called number two of some sort. Yep. And the reason why you need nitrate is because can correct me if I'm wrong. It is essentially like a time release capsule of nitrite. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's 
that's a simple way to kind of explain it. I mean, it's essentially the chemical process of to get into the like the science behind it. The nitrate has a longer protection term. So the conversion of nitrate to nitrites is is what gives you the protection long term. Now, the one thing to keep in mind is that in Cure 2, there are both nitrates and nitrites. So nitrites give you the immediate kind of short-term protection, and then the nitrates give you the long-term protection because they're breaking down to nitrites over time. So one starts it, and then the other one kind of is there to bring up the rear. Exactly. So you've, then when you're making your salami, then you've got to add their starter. And you generally add your starter right before mixing. And I always use distilled water. Yep. Is there any reason to not use distilled water? No. I mean, unless you're on a well where you know that your water is clear of, of chloride. But even then, I mean, just go buy some distilled water, throw it in your fridge. It's not going to go bad and you'll be fine. Exactly. I mean, the reason why is because if you've got chlorides in your tap water, it can kill your yeast, you know, your bacterial starter. Right. Which would be bad. Yeah. And I made that mistake probably two dozen times when I first started. And it's, I mean, you feel like an idiot, but it's fine. Yeah. I mean, just go buy distilled water. It's one of those things, oh, I just have good good water. Why does he want to? Because it will kill your friggin' bacterial starter, which are expensive, by the way. Yeah. They're not cheap. And they're also, yeah. They are. Spices. Do you use fresh? You know, I'm talking like I include garlic and such with that. Do you use fresh herbs and spices in a a dry cured product? Very, very, very rarely. Unless I've come across a recipe where the spec specifically calls for the fresh, I generally never use it. Interesting, because I always use fresh garlic. And I always use, um, I'll always use fresh what I call hard spices mm-hmm. like uh, like sage or, or rosemary or thyme tends to be, but I will I will often use if I'm using a parsley I'll use a dry parsley. Hmm. Uh, I, I you know it's again I mean we you and I have got, talked before in other venues about can you use frozen meat to make salami and the answer short answer to everyone is yes you can um, because you know you're dealing with water loss to make a salami and water loss is one of the problems of frozen meat so. You know, you're you're generally good, but with spices and with with herbs and things, well, it's just more water to lose. Right. And and so, uh, for me, garlic is the big one. I mean, I use dried spices with some frequency. I mean, dried herbs with some frequency, and and dried spices, well, pretty much the definition of a spice. But garlic, for me, I always use it fresh. Yeah, I you know I I don't I don't have any reason why I just haven't <laughs> there's no real explanation for it other than i just don't yeah but measure i mean by going back to the scale thing if you're when you're doing this we have tested our recipes so when we present to you a recipe then you want to you should at least trust us the first time right and make our recipe or anybody's recipe who is reputable and make it and do the whole thing and then taste it and think about it. Now, tasting salami, we'll get into that in a little bit, but I mean, when you taste salami, you, you really almost the first time need to be in a quiet room and everybody needs to shut the hell up because you need to just kind of just dwell on that salami that you've made. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I'm a 12 year old trapped in a 45 year old's body. <laughs> You're way older than 45, but stop. I'm only 45. Don't, don't let the gray hair fool you. Um, 
but you really need to sort of dwell on it a little bit to sort of decide, oh, is there too much salt or too much that or too little of this the first time? And then you can you can mess around with the recipe. And I would actually I would just to kind of add to that, I would make it three times with that recipe because you want to make sure that it's the recipe and, and not you. <laughs> mm, good point. Good point. What about meats other than pork? How often do you use that? Not as often as I should. I was actually just thinking the other day that I haven't really made a, a beef salami in a, in a while. But when you were doing the Duck, Duck, Goose book, you know, we tested a couple of duck recipes. Um, but, you know, the great thing about a lot of the recipes is that they have analogs. You know, if, if it calls for beef, you could likely use venison. If it calls for um, pork, I mean, duck is is my general substitute for pork because it has a much fuller flavor typically than, you know, a much sweeter flavor than than mm-hmm. venison typically does. But I mean, obviously so much of that is also dependent on where you're hunting. Right. You know, I, I have, I think corn fed deer, so they, they taste like corn fed deer. <laughs> I think that, I think the actual, I mean, if you think about it and you want to sort of talk to a, a relative beginner, I don't think the meat's really the issue. No. I think you can pretty much okay, well there's one issue is is the uh, the issue of trichinosis or 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 foodborne parasites. And so I would not make a bear salami. Although you and I have gone back and forth again, you know, does the nitrate and the cure and the salt content of the salami in the drying time render inoperable those trichinae parasites and and the the general answer is probably, but I don't know that I want to make a bear saucisson sec. Yeah, I and I haven't whenever that comes up, you know, I I try and do the research and read abstracts and I haven't found anything definitive other than the freezing step. But mm-hmm. but that's only trichinella and uh, right. spiralis, which is not the there's a northern variety of trichinella parasite that lives really from the northern you you know, from Michigan to Washington and Maine all the way up to the north that um that doesn't die with freezing right so anyway so yes you know if in general like any store-bought meat you could you could in theory make a chicken salami um it's the fat to my mind that is much more of an important issue and the only fats that i've ever worked with oh well, let me just rephrase it the only fat that i've ever worked with that worked really well was pork fat yeah i've i've worked with beef lamb duck you made a duck salami with duck fat? Yeah, your recipe called for it. Oh, yeah, but that was emulsified. Well, right. I'm just saying okay. I've used it. <laughs> the, 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 I don't I don't like using duck fat in like a standard like, you no. know, regular salami because it melts. It literally will melt out of the salami yeah. while you're drying. And it seems and I don't know this to be true um entire I've used deer deer fat as well. I don't know if it's like a ruminant thing or or what, but the the lamb and the goat and deer and or venison and and beef fat does not work for me personally in a salami. It the mouth feels off. It doesn't. It's too hard. It it just doesn't seem to work well in that that particular setting. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I mean, I will I'll put pork fat next to you know, a woodchuck for crying out loud. I don't care, but but I'm not. I won't use. Venison fat in dry cured products. I won't use. The only time I use duck fat is if it's an emulsified product, um, because then it, for whatever reason, it works. 
beef that you know you've got a lot of people who are like well i want to make a dried cured product and i don't eat pork and the only thing i could tell them is to use beef fat that's trimmed off of a piece of meat that you would normally eat as opposed to you know the the beef equivalent of fat back or 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 beef suet which is infinitely harder than the beef fat that's like on the outside of a ribeye for example yeah there's a guy um, I've never tested any of his recipes, so I can't necessarily vouch for for the quality. But the um, he, he calls himself the Binny Jew, but he's a, a devout Jewish guy out on Long Island, I believe. And he is often taking traditionally pork preparations and converting them to, to kosher friendly. Um, they look decent. They look good. I've just I've never tasted them or or tested them, so. I'd be interested to know what where he's getting the fat off the off the beef. Yeah, exactly. And I, again, like I haven't dove into to the details of it, but he's he's probably the first place I'd start in yeah. terms of looking it up. I think the, so. The short the short answer is use pork fat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and my preference is my my top preference is to use one hundred percent pure pork fat back. Second choice would be pork belly. Third choice would be fatty pork shoulder. Right. Yeah, you know that's. I would say that, especially if you're using, um, like for me, I'm often using like venison or duck or something else besides pork as the meat. Sometimes fatty pork shoulder can be good because it adds a little bit more porky flavor into it and it can tame a little bit. Yeah, but if I want to make a straight up venison salami, it's going to be four pounds of straight up venison with no fat and one pound of fat back. Right. Casings, I tend to, I mean, I used to go and buy the beef casings mm-hmm. because they look so pretty. I've started to just, you know, because you can now buy them online at like, you know, Weston or Butcher and Packer or Sausage Maker. Yep. And you can buy those really fat hog casings. Yep. And I kind of dig those. They're like 38.42 millimeters. Yep. And for me, that's become my sausage casing of choice. And I know it's not traditional, but it sure is a lot easier. Yeah, beef beef is a little, little tricky because of its the thickness of it um but yeah i i tend to stay in that like 38 range i think that that's a nice size that you can kind of control through how big how long you make the links in terms of you know controlling the drying and whatnot but yeah mm-hmm. i i have a ton of obscure casings too that i have started to pull out that is kind of fun as well there's one My, called pel de signa I don't know if it's Pelle or Pelle, but um, it's actually, it comes from Italy and it it's made from, if if anybody has made pork ribs, you pull off that membrane on the inside of the pork ribs and it's basically sheets of, of that that are dried together and, and sewn together. That's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say like, you know, I was, I was going to, you know, start making beef bung jokes and, and like, wow, you just totally went up me. Yeah. <laughs> we can go the bladder route too if you want. I actually, okay, so the last deer I shot, um, I'm cleaning this deer, and I'm looking at the bladder, and I'm like, huh, I could totally stuff, ah, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> just, I just didn't want to go there. You know, it's not that big, and it would be like a, you know, it's it's the size of kind of a, like a really big one's the size of a softball, but more, mostly they're baseball size, so. Yeah, and that, that topic of making your own casings comes up about once a quarter in the group, and I emphatically respond with, no. <laughs> don't it, do it. It, it it's a shitty job yeah, there you go <laughs> so once you've got your sausage made now we got to ferment it yep 
Um, my, I'll, 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 I'll give you my totally ghetto fermenting chamber and then you give me yours. So mine is, mine is basically, I have like a, a clothes drying rack that's about maybe four feet, five feet tall. And I, underneath it, I have a wooden clothes drying rack that I hang the actual links on. And then, so the taller rack, I, I throw garbage bags over and seal the garbage bags up with either tape or with, you know, little paper clips or whatever. And I stick a humidifier underneath the whole shebang and let it sit in my living room for a couple, three days. Yeah, that's a lot more work than I do. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, probably the next to your refrigerator, the best sealed vessel in in your house is your oven. And it's, Mm -hmm. and it's intended to keep, keep temps, you know, pretty consistent. So typically what I'll do is, is I'll use the oven and put a, a towel or two that's, that's soaked in water because you want to keep the humidity up and I'll put it in there. And then depending on, on how hot I'm trying to ferment, uh, I may turn the light on and off to, to add some heat to it. But that's mm-hmm. typically where, where I do my fermenting. And I know, um, Jason and, and Scott, uh, the two folks I mentioned earlier already, you know, Jason Molinari, he actually goes so far as to cover his trays in plastic wrap to keep the humidity up that, that high but doing it in the um in the oven or or as you did it it, it's all fine i mean you're basically just trying to create a consistent environment that's high humidity and and warmer than you would prefer to dry them in that's a that's a great idea so you put the you put the the rack way up at the top by the broiler and you hang them from the rack and then uh, you've got the the wet towel underneath yeah i actually just lay them down um on cookie sheets. Oh, okay. So that like I don't hang them because they'll, you know, if you have the cookie sheet on top of, or I'm sorry, the the cooling rack that you would put cookies or bread on, that mm-hmm. allows the air to flow through and they're not just laying on their side. Oh, I see. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So they, you know, and generally a ferment is it's almost always at least 24 hours, and I like between 48 and 72. Yep. Again, depending on the culture. Yep. I think both of us use something like TSPX or, you know, it doesn't matter necessarily what the the code is, but you're looking for a Southern European culture. It'll say it right there. And and that's – I like that easier because a lot of the Northern European ones, which are mimicked by the American style – require actually quite hot temperatures, like 90 degrees. Yeah. The one I use right now pretty much exclusively is uh, BLC, um, and it's the LC stands for Listeria Control. And, Mm. uh, it's, it's kind of the, the follow-up to, um, to FLC, I guess uh, people refer to it, but it's a low temp culture. So you don't need to get the temps up high. So it's, and it's good with the listeria control for even like a slower ferment, but that's, that's one that I would recommend for people to use or the, you know, the FLC is another one that that's out there, but I've used that one. Yeah. But they're, they're less aggressive cultures that if you want the tang, you can get it by adding more dextrose and raising the heat, but they're a little bit more forgiving in that they're a lower temp and, and a little bit of a less aggressive culture. Gotcha. So now it's time to hang it. Yep. And so I've I've got my universal again. <laughs> you know I've been doing this for so long, and I've just you know kind of kept up my ghetto traditions. I nice. I should probably get something nicer, but I've got this ancient refrigerator that I bought for fifty bucks on Craigslist, 
and I got I went to a brew shop and I bought a temperature regulator. So regulator goes into the wall, plug from the refrigerator goes into the regulator and you have a dial that uh sets the temperature and the, and it knows the temperature by you put a little wire temperature gauge and you thread it through the the gas the, you know the gasket mm-hmm. that shuts the refrigerator door. And so that's in the winter time that's perfectly good for me in California because it's very humid here now. Lucky bastard. If I, well, yeah, I mean it's it's this is a rainy season, but you know, I'm not so lucky if I'm trying to do salami in July when it's you know 112 120 degrees in the uh in the garage. So if you don't have high humidity, you need to create some either with a humidifier or at the very least a pan of salt water. And you need to check on your salami I say every day for two reasons. One, you want to get anything bad happening in the bud. And two, the, the process of opening the chamber, looking inside and shutting the door again, creates enough air movement that you can get, you know, that you basically need a little bit of air movement. And you don't need a ton, otherwise you dry them out. But you need enough so that it's not stagnated and they don't sweat and then you get weird, nasty black mold all the time. Yeah. And I, I don't know what your situation is, but I bet you, you do it differently. Uh, I did it similarly until we moved into the new house here in Michigan, where I was fortunate enough to have a whole room that I can convert into securing. But essentially, the principles are the same. You're using, you know, a, a thermostat and a humidistat to control the conditions, and you know they control temperature and, and humidity respectively. And you know, prior to the room, yeah, I just had a fridge. I had. Um, the humidistat and thermostat and sensor in the fridge. I had a little computer fan that I hooked up to a plug. And um, one thing that that uh, I would recommend is also adding actually a heating element, or whether it's a reptile heater or a um, or a, a bulb, a light bulb of some sort. And you can actually add it on a dimmer switch. But what that'll do is it'll help with the air movement because it'll raise the temperature just slightly and kick the uh, cycling of the fridge on so that it circles, it cycles the air through um, and, and refreshes the air a bit. But ah, it's a good idea. There's a lot of, I mean, the popularity of the hobby has really created a lot of, a lot of uh, tools and, and a lot of components that are way easier than when we all started making them. You know, we were all kind of hacking stuff together but now on if you go to auber in so a u b e r i n s dot com and you look up their t h two ten is the model number, but that is a temperature and humidity controller specifically for home curing. It's one hundred and thirty bucks. You put it in your fridge and you have temperature and humidity control. No way, really? Yeah, that is. <sighs> I think I need to upgrade. Yeah, you do. So I, you know, with these hog casings that I use, I usually go, I like to actually like let them go a long time because mm-hmm. I like that funk that you get. Yep. The, the trick that I use to do that, because if you, if you do it in a normal fridge, you can get what's called case hardening, which is where the outside of the salami dries faster than the inside and you, it creates a barrier to moisture loss and your salami is basically ruined at that point if it's too bad. So, but what I try to do is I try to, when I, everything, I, I put in, I make a ton of salami and I put it in all in the same week. And then I fill the chamber. And then I, I started at 90% humidity. Mm-hmm. 
and I kick it down 5% a week or every week or so until it gets about 65% and then I'll, then I'll hold it. And I find that if I do that, then I can keep even hog casings in the cure, you know, in the, in the drying chamber for months and months and months and they don't, they don't become jerky. And that trick tends to allow me to create a salami that has a little bit more of a, of a, it's the difference between a two-year-old red wine and a 10-year-old red wine. Yep. And low temp, high humidity is, is actually how Craig Deal does it. He keeps, because of the, the FDA requirements, he keeps his, his room to about 42 degrees, between 40 Holy and 42. Man. And the humidity really high. And um, the humidity being high allows him to kind of really extend out the, the drying time, like you were mentioning. Me personally, I keep my room probably around 50 to 55, depending on the season. Um, it drops a little lower than that in the wintertime. And then the humidity I keep at about 85 for most of the, most of the year. Okay. I'll, I will, I will admit to having never weighed a salami ever. Um, I pretty much just like, I look at it like, yeah, that's about right. And, and I haven't been wrong yet. <laughs> so if you, if you don't, uh, have the force, like apparently I do, uh, you probably should weigh your links, yep. uh, prior to hanging and write it down on a piece of paper and then come back, you know, in three weeks or four weeks or six weeks or whatever, and then take another measurement. And then you're looking for, what do you think? 30%? Yeah, I would start at 30, pull it down at 30 and, and, you know, pull one link down, slice it up, see how that feels for you. And, uh, and you can always let it go longer, but the last thing you want to do is take it to 40 and try and add moisture back in. The last thing I want to talk about is something like adding moisture back in, and that's the vacuum vacay. <laughs> the, the, term, the term coined by Scott Stegen. Yeah, I think he did, yeah. actually. He did. <laughs> uh, it's brilliant, though. I mean, I, I can tell you, because you know, in my situation, I often get a little bit of case hardening. Yep which you can see uh, it'll be a dark ring around the outside of the salami. And it won't be so bad where it's bad or anything. It's just, it's slightly photogenic. And it's just, I just, he said, oh yeah, just put it in a vacuum sealer and just throw it in the fridge. So I've done that. And at a minimum of two weeks, and it, you can see results, but I can also, and I don't know if this is food safe or not, but it sure has worked for me, is I have had purely, for, you know, done, you know, finished salami. And I've stuck them in a vacuum sealed bag and then stuck them in the fridge for like, well, I just ate one that was 16 months old, and it was perfectly fine. Yeah, and it, a few of us are actually doing a test to see if there's increased flavor development during that period as well, because you're not experiencing any loss, but there's still, you know, conversion of proteins and amino acids and and all those things that are, you know, because it's a living thing, you know, it's a biological yeah. thing, and you know, we're trying to see if there's any additional development. Uh, of flavor that occurs during that period. One trick uh, we actually learned, and this is something that when people do the vac vacay for the first time, specifically talking about um, uh, stuffed salami, is they will get slimy. <laughs> so when you pull them out of the, the vacuum sealer, don't be alarmed. They're slimy, but that's just just feels weird. You're going to take the casing off most of the time anyway. What right. you can actually do is wrap them in paper towels. That's what I do. Yep. And that'll take care of it. Well, it'll help it at least. We've been through, we've been talking about this for over an hour. Yeah. Uh, and we could probably talk about this for another hour. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is what happens when you have no life. 
Uh, or, you know, if you actually know something about something right. that everybody asks us all the freaking time. I don't I don't think I go a week without somebody giving me, you know, hey, I'm doing this salami and I've got this question and and it just happens all the time. And, and we do this all every year. I mean, I'm about to I tend to do it seasonally. I yep. tend I'm right now. As soon as duck season ends, I start making charcuterie all the way until about May. So from you know February, March, April, May, I'm making stuff all the time. And then I enjoy it for the rest of the year. But I think the last thing that I want to leave somebody with is just is, is yeah, you need to do some homework. It's a little bit like mushroom hunting in that respect. Yes. That this is, there is some, you have to be committed to learning, actually learning something. This is not a seat of your pants. This is not frying a chicken. This is not, this is something that has a lot of, areas for you to express yourself creatively. However, it's more like jazz in the sense that there are rules. There are certain things that you need to not mess with, like the salt, like the nitrite, like the starters. If you get that and you make sure that you're paying good attention to those parts, you can be a little bit more creative in other areas of of this craft. But you know, so but it's but nor is it rocket science. Right. So it's like I mean, we we Kristen and I can do it. So how hard could it be, right? Yeah. So <laughs> so two numb nuts from New Jersey. Exactly right. right? Yeah. You know, and so like don't you know don't get all clenched about it, but don't do it in a in a hurry. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, the exercise is not that of speed. <laughs> like that's not you don't make salumi because it's going to come out fast you make salumi because it tastes good and it's an exercise in patience and like you have to embrace that that component of it of it all you know we live such fast lives i think one of the reasons why that this hobby has become so popular is it 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 forces you to slow down and it forces you to be quiet yeah it forces restraint because there there's no covering things up down the line. I mean, it's a whole, you, you can, you can salvage mistakes and that's probably a conversation for, for another podcast, but um, it's just, if you're not willing to weigh your sahab, I promise you, you will end up with an inedible product. It is unforgiving in that way. <laughs> yes. It's, it's like, it's a, if, if baking is like this in a day and winemaking is like this in a year, this is it in six months. I yeah. mean, there's all these processes where you have to, you know, the, what the carpenter says, measure twice, cut once. Yep. Yeah. And just take your time and, and use the resources that are out there. I mean, I think, um, you know, a lot of people enter the, the hobby through bacon. And I think that that's a that's a good, safe place to to be. But once you step into the ground product, there's there's a lot more uh, room for for making people sick and, and wasting a lot of product and. There are so many resources out there and so many books that yep. there's really no reason why you should be failing so hard. And, uh, you know, just use the resources that are there. And, and there's there's so many good websites now, too. It, For sure. I, I mean, I've got some recipes on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. Yep. You know, you, there's a sausage debauchery. There's salt-cured pig to some extent, although it tends to be a little bit less salami and more other stuff. Yep. The if you're looking for books, um, a extremely good primer is Cooking by Hand by Paul Bertoli. Yep. And then there are two books by the Mariansky brothers, 
they have long and complicated names, but if you remember Mariansky and look up, you know, meat on, on Amazon, you'll find them. Um, there are, uh, if you like Spanish stuff, there's a guy named Jeffrey Weiss who's got a really good book char- called Charcuteria. Um, there's a, if you like English stuff, there's a book uh, by a guy whose name escapes me called Manual of a Traditional Bacon Cure. And, and in England, bacon is anything porky and cured. That's a really good one for that culture. Um, Rytek Kutas has some pretty good stuff for, yeah, it's sort of more fresh sausages. But, uh, you know, Tyler Betcher in the charcuterie is pretty good. Uh, what other ones can you think of? That's really it. I mean, I think that some of the other books that are out there that, you know, are worth not mentioning, so to speak, would they're, they've kind of fallen out of, of favor for me because there have been more precise books written um, on the craft. I think the Mariansky books are a good one. Um, there's actually, you know, for those, for folks that speak Italian or, or Spanish or French, you know, if you look on on Google or Amazon UK or Amazon Italy, you know, dot IT, there are some really great books from Europe as well. Can share those names with you, you know, at some point. But they um they're great for for learning about the old world methods too and, and kind of balancing where you fit in between the modern methods and the old world methods. Most of these books I'll put links to them on the website and um I want to thank you for coming to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, and I just, I just, I love, I love talking about salami with you, Christian. Yeah, so my, <laughs> this is this is the moment in my day where I wonder what I did wrong in life. How is it possible that we talked for over an hour about salami and didn't make any dick jokes? Yeah, because we're being recorded. We are being recorded, and and it's like you have to, you know, if you have to understand that it, that Christian and I are both from New Jersey, and and it just it just happens. It's a vortex, and we were very good today. Yeah, and if if anybody's ever unfortunate enough to hang out with the two of us, you'll learn how just how good we were. <laughs> it's the it's the unrated version. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks a lot for your time. Yeah. And um, I will I will be in Michigan and. October. Yeah. And uh I'll bring my meat. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> bring bring your uh bring your your overly tangy salami. Hey <laughs> All right. Well, take it easy. Thanks, See ya. Bye. Well, that's it for this week's Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and as always, if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast in whatever format suits you best. And if you really liked it, leave me a comment or a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really, really helps me out. Thanks a lot, and I will talk with you next week.